Hey everybody, it is episode 167 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming to you from Austin, Texas. Excited to have a guest today on the show. Brad Hudson joins me. How are you doing today, Brad? I'm doing great, Chris. Really happy to be here and um, appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah. Well, this will probably be the first of maybe at least a few times, maybe maybe many. We'll see. All right. But you are That's a up new, a lot. Yeah, you are a new team member here at Rogue. Just came on to join us starting last week to coach our Team Rogue morning group in downtown Austin. And we're excited to have you as the coach of that group. And I'm great to be here. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun. We can already I can already see the fingerprints of your programming on the group. And so it's fun to see that. We'll talk more about that as we dive in. And for anybody who might be listening in Austin who wants to become a part of that, we'll give all of those details at the end. But we're going to start, Brad, with a list of current event topics that I want to get your perspective on as someone who has coached at the highest levels in our sport and and who I'm sure has an opinion about these things. So we'll start with... And this wasn't so recent, but at least a couple weeks ago, London announced that Kipchoge versus Bekele is going to go down this April in London. This will be their fifth head-to-head in the marathon distance. To this point, Kipchoge has dominated. He's won four out of the, the previous head-to-head battles. Although now there's renewed interest because of Bekele's performance in Berlin where he won Berlin and finished just narrowly behind Kipchoge's world record there. So we've got a renewed rivalry of sorts as Bekele seems to be back on top of his game. What do you think of this? So I think it's fantastic. It's uh, great for the sport and, um, you know, the competition's what the sport's about. And uh, I think um, it's great to see someone challenge Kipchoge who, you know, has become a household name over these last uh, few months. And, um, you know, the marathon has shown that, uh, for Bikile anyway, that it, that he's human and, uh, it's been rough. He's had great stuff and he's had some poor stuff and that's how most people, the marathon goes, but he's competing against a guy who seems to have, uh, the best mental outlook I've ever seen on an athlete and is not, uh, flustered or flawed. And I mean, he won Berlin with his insoles coming out of his shoe. He, you know, just broke two hours, which I think is going to, um, it's the first time I've heard people, you know, I, I drink a lot of coffee. So it was the first time I've heard people go into coffee shops that had knew nothing about running and start talking about the sub two hour, about Kipchoge, about the shoes. So wherever you stand on this, it, we need print and we need, um, you know, the sport to, you know, every night I watch ESPN cause I want to see how the Lakers did. I'm a mm-hmm. Lakers fan. Excuse me. And, um, you know, it's on and they show all the highlights and all that stuff and running barely ever gets on. Um, so anything that can bring us to the general masses and in the press and in the, you know, TV is, is very good. But as far as who's going to win this, you know, I, I would never bet against Kipchoge in the marathon. <laughs> I think, uh, he's only lost once. Yeah. But if someone's going to do it, it's because <laughs> it's going to be fascinating. I tend to agree with you that Kipchoge is clearly the favorite. And I think Bekele's challenge with the marathon has been his lack of perhaps consistent preparation. Even his agent, Josh Hermans, will talk about how Bekele hasn't always put his best foot forward, especially in these later years in the marathon distance. It seemed like he was finally able to do that in Berlin. We'll see if he can do that again. But as you say, it's hard to beat that just mental 
power that Kipchoge brings and then the, the consistent performances. I mean, he's consistently performed in the marathon, never really had a bad day. So you've got to, you've got to count on that and that's hard to count on. Yes. And, uh, I think that at least what it seems like, uh, I think this Bekele, uh, winning, um, Berlin, uh, renewed him, I think, and he's probably motivations, but I mean, how do you get motivated when you've won, uh, you know, four Olympic gold medals and, um, <laughs> set world records and won all these world, it's just like, I think the marathon for him and his career was an afterthought. And so it may awaken him a little bit, this yeah. rivalry and this medal hunt. Well, in some degree, to some degree, now that this is almost a battle for the goat, right? The, the greatest of all time distance runner. Yeah. Many, I think are arguing now that Kipchoge could be taking that mantle, even though he doesn't have the same accolades at the shorter distances that Bekele has because of his consistency in the marathon. And so maybe that mantle is now up for grabs and that's motivating for him in this case. Yeah. As far as, you know, the marathon, I think Kipchoge for sure. But, uh, as far as the greatest distance runner of all time, it's Bekele. I mean, just what he's done his range, his medals, his, you know, um, competition record and, um, it's, World cross. Yeah, it's he has everything. And um, not that Kip, I mean, Kipchoge probably could have it if he wanted, but uh, he definitely, Kipchoge came to the marathon with, uh, I think, a lot more to prove um, than Bekele. And uh, that's where he's made his mark. And it's been good for the marathon. It's so good to have a star that's a good person and, and a good role model for the sport and uh, how he lives his life. And, you know, there's a lot of great things uh, that he's offering the sport. And, I really hope that, uh, you know, the best thing for the sport would be if Bekele won, you know, because <laughs> I think uh, going to the Olympics, the uh, the viewership would go up and uh, right. the press would go up. But it, And it would just be fun over the next year or two to see uh, as they finish out their careers, uh, this battle. Yeah, it'll be interesting because you're right. This may be one of two head-to-head matchups if they both decide to compete in Tokyo, which I, I know Kipchoge has a medal a gold medal to defend, so you would imagine yeah. he would be there. Bekele hasn't yet committed to that, but you think he would also want to go after that as well. So we'll see how it plays out, but it's definitely going to be exciting. So that's one topic. You mentioned being a Lakers fan. Yes. I didn't realize that yes. about you, but I guess we can't then we can't pass that very sad that day mention yeah. without yeah. talking about Kobe Bryant losing him yesterday. How did you feel about that? Very sad, and I. I mean, I watched the news a lot yesterday and, you know, you could see uh, just feel feel for his family and, and all the other players, how they were reaching out and it's horrible. And so, uh, you know, he seemed pretty happy moving on from basketball too. a lot of, you know, athletes have a hard adjustment transitioning. He seemed like he was doing pretty well. Yeah. But well, yeah, I did. I did actually. I watched a couple of clips from interviews with him and one of them was on. He was on with Rich Eisen, and Rich Eisen was asking him if there was any temptation at all to come back and don the uniform to play with LeBron, and and he said no, zero percent. He said when people, when I retire, people told me that that I would have trouble in retirement, getting away from the game because of my competitive fire, and so he said he said in the interview that he took that as a personal challenge you know, to be able to unleash that fire on something else. And, you know, I know he'd done that with, I guess he set up a studio essentially to start to create content, including the short film 
on from his dear basketball letter that that announced his retirement and so so he was adamant that that would never happen because he was focused ahead on other things he also talked about his family and so forth and being committed to that part of his life too so that was one thing i saw another thing i saw that i thought was fascinating was another interview where he was asked about practice and how he approaches practice and he said from his perspective practice should be harder than the games you know he said phil jackson never took it easy on them that they always worked really hard there were no quote-unquote light days and he felt like that was one of the keys to his success was always bringing a competitive fire to practice and that he expected that of his teammates and if he didn't get it from them he would tell them and sometimes call them out on it because he thought that in order to be your best on the court in game time you also had to practice your best yeah yeah for sure i've seen that and um you know he had a rare that rare competitive thing that like michael jordan had you know not the cliche but uh michael jordan had and very few athletes have just that that fire to compete and uh you know uh it's interesting because i i became a fan of kobe when um first came in the league he was just out of high school and signed with the lakers out of high school and uh there you know they were uh, i think it was a playoff game and um i think he uh airballed uh like two seconds left or something they're like he's unguardable but he like airballed it yeah. uh his first his rookie year and uh came back and uh you know i i hear stories that he would come to go before the game like three or four hours before and keep practicing certain shots and like yeah he was a perfectionist for sure yeah competitive fire also in many ways a really well-rounded he yeah, spoke italian spoke italian yeah i'm a, i'm about i'm a dallas mavericks fan so i've never been a lakers fan or a kobe fan particularly but luka Doncic is the the new map sensation yep. and they played a game in the staples center a couple of months ago and Doncic had the ball on the sideline he was going to do an inbounds pass Kobe was sitting courtside right behind him, but Doncic didn't realize that. And so he said he heard somebody speaking Slovenian to him. Doncic is Slovenian. He heard somebody speaking Slovenian to him, and he was shocked. So he actually stopped <laughs> mid-game, turned around to see who it was, and it was Kobe <laughs> speaking to him in Slovenian. For sure. And he gave him a little fist bump <laughs> and then went about his time. But, yeah, he grew up and spent a lot of time in Italy, in Europe. Because his as, dad played as over a kid, there. Yeah. his dad played there, so spoke from what i understand several languages besides italian as well so a man of the world but obviously had a complicated legacy i think you know much has been made about how he had his flaws as well but sure, you can't sure. yeah. you can't deny that competitive fire that seemed to transcend having impact beyond basketball as well yeah and globally like the game changed with uh him and and lebron and and the dream even before him the dream team it became a now it's so you know i don't know if it's they said one out of every three or four players in the nba are uh foreign mm. some, something crazy like that that the game's global right so yep so it is sad and and yes as you said thoughts definitely with his family and all the families for those that were on that helicopter yesterday let's Move beyond that. Talk about some other happenings this weekend. We had the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. I don't know if you saw the results from that, but it kind of kicked off in some ways the indoor season for at least the elites. Had Did some, paid a little bit of attention. 
Yeah. Yeah. Had some interesting results there. Donovan Brazier ran the second fastest 600 indoor 600 of all time. Yeah. So he, I think he actually holds the world record in that event. So it was his second fastest time. Yeah, so phenomenal athlete. And he yeah. made it look really, really easy. Donovan Brazier obviously had an amazing year as well last year, competing in the world champs, winning gold there and being really dominant even through the circuits as well. I know you're not an 800 meter coach, no. but what do you think about an athlete like Donovan Brazier? So I think Donovan is phenomenal. Uh, you know, actually my uh, roommate from Boulder is actually his coach, Pete Julian. So okay. Pete Julian coaches uh, Donovan and Donovan's from Michigan. I'd heard all about Donovan from Jason Hartman, uh, who I used to coach, who's from Michigan and how this is the best out, you know, he, even before when he, I think right before he even broke the junior record, I was hearing this guy was the best athlete they've ever seen yeah. and, uh, sure proved it. And, uh, I think he's amazing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's when you win the world champs going into Olympics, not a bad, uh, bad thing. Yeah. It seems like he's also been able to do it mainly off talent to this point. You know, I was reading some about his training before he made the transition to working with Pete Julian, which is that he's not a, didn't have a lot of miles in his legs. He was kind of working off of a lot of that talent and I'm sure over time we'll build that. How do you take somebody like that who is just so talented, but yet maybe doesn't have the aerobic foundation yet? What do you do? So I, I mean, for him, obviously just train him because everything's going to stick and, and grow, make him a better athlete. And so, um, yeah, so I'd heard crazy stories like he'd been running two or three weeks. Like, yeah, he could probably run one forty-five right now. <laughs> like, right. crazy stuff. So, really uh, you know, you got to keep him healthy first off. You, uh, you know, I'm, I definitely not super interested in middle distance, but I do watch and and like, and I think um, the eight hundred and the marathon are the two hardest events to to coach because of the extremes in systems and energy systems and the diversity of athletes that you're actually coaching. And they're both, uh, to some extent, you know, it's, it's a balance of speed and endurance and the same in the marathon. And, um, you know, extreme vents are, you know, you hear crazy stories about the 800, how, you know, there's certain coaches that think very good coaches too, that think the 800 is pure voodoo hmm. that, uh, you know, you have to try a little bit of everything and, and hope, uh, you know, you get the right thing because you're either coming at it from speed or you're coming at it from the 1500 and, um, you know, Donovan, uh, Obviously, obviously, if you know Donovan, he's coming at it from speed. And so right. he's going to want to fast, you know, the faster you are, the faster, uh, you know, pace you want. Uh, it's more advantageous to you if you're uh, a 4.8 person rather than a 15.8 where you want a little more even. So. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he develops. Clearly, Julian has found a way to keep him healthy last year. Let's yeah. see if he can carry that because he's yeah. definitely going to be a, a gold medal favorite going into Tokyo. And he seems happy. He does. Like he has, yeah. I mean, obviously, when you're winning, you're pretty happy, but yep. he seems genuinely like it's a good thing. Yeah, and I think he had some doldrums post going to the Oregon Project because of the situation at A&M where he's kind of ended up without a coach for a little bit, but now mm -hmm. seems to be in a happy place. Let's talk about the women's side. We had a couple of big events there. One that was notable for me was the women's 3K but El Purrier get the win there. And then I believe second and third were the teammates from from Joe Bossard's group. Emma Coburn was third and Dom her Dom Scott, her teammate, was second in the in the two mile. Yeah. Saw that. 
Emma made a statement before in the press conference before that she was not going to be competing in the Diamond League or Continental Cup steeple events this year because of the decision by the IAAF to remove the steeple from the Diamond League format, which was a big deal, in my opinion, to have an athlete like that stand up and and say, hey, this isn't acceptable to me, and as a result, I'm just not going to show up. That's a big deal, and it'll be interesting to see if that has any impact on ultimately how these decisions play out. But what do you think about that decision by the IAAF to take the steeple out of the equation and about Emma's stand? So I think uh, it's obviously, uh, I, I see Emma all the time uh, when I was living in Boulder and a big fan of Joe and her. And I know most of the people in their group, they're, they're really great. Um, it's bad for the sport that Emma Coburn doesn't want to run the steeple and bad for the viewership and, um, you know, most of the people I, you know, we're in the U S and we're U S oriented, but most people are paying attention because, you know, Emma's in the steeple and, and especially in my area, she went to see you, but, um, you know, my feeling, I, I've been seeing this trend last few years and it's not, uh, any, I don't know. I don't know if it's Sebastian Coates fall, you know, I'm not blaming anyone. The sport's dying track and field to me. And this is no, we have amazing athletes and it's beautiful to watch. And I love, you know, 400 hurdles has been amazing this year and the high jump uh, was amazing this year. And, you know, there's some amazing stuff and you uh, Usain Bolt, you know, probably saved the sport for a few years, yeah. uh, you know, but I just feel like, you know, when they're, when the 10 K has gone away and now it seems like the Kenyans and Ethiopians are all moving to the marathon right away because just what are they going to train all year to run one championship 10 K and then a, you know, 10 K before. And there's nothing against, you know, Mo Farah has won all kinds of medals. It just seems to me that there's just a lack of great long distance races um, internationally now. And so yep. the cost effectiveness, if you're, you know, an Ethiopian or a Kenyan, what you're going to travel across the world, travel to Europe to run 110K, you know, in August and not concentrate on the roads. I don't know. Just right. to, so I love track and I hope it, you know, but taking out the women's steeple is a bad move. It's a bad move, so I'm glad to see Emma stand up against it. I think, in general, the athlete's voice is one that needs to have more of a place in these decisions, and so hopefully somebody like Emma standing up will help that, although she did say as a part of that press conference or maybe even in her commentary post-race that it's, she hopes others will stand take a similar stand because it's hard to do that alone and have impact. So she, I think, is a little bit afraid that she'll be the only one, and then suddenly it gets washed away and it won't matter. Now, I went to the Diamond League Monaco last July when I was in Europe for the Women's World Cup and took my three kids, my wife, we sat like third row right by the start line or the finish line, I guess, start line for some events. And it was an amazing atmosphere. Now, one of the things that frustrates me about the IAAF decision because one of their rationales was well, we're doing this because the younger generation doesn't want to see some of these events. They're too long. They won't capture their imagination. And so we sat there in this two-hour meet with three kids. I've got three kids and at the time they're six, eight, and ten. And by the way, the stadium was completely packed and, and it was packed from the first high jump that was the first event all the way to the last pole vault which bookended the event and i was worried 
that my kids would be bored. This was not their first track meet. They've been to Texas Relays here in town. And so, you know, they had some exposure to it through me, but I was worried they'd be bored and that we might have to like leave early as a result. But they were riveted. They were riveted by it because before every event, I would tell them who the key players were and who they should be rooting for in this event. And sometimes it was an American athlete. Sometimes it wasn't. And they got into it because then they had somebody to cheer for after I gave them a little story about that person. And they were in it the whole way. We're excited about it. The buzz afterwards from them was awesome. I think it was one of the highlights of the trip for them. And so to me, it's frustrating because there are plenty of good stories to tell. And as you said, they're great athletes. And it's just the fault, in my opinion, of the governing bodies and the powers that be that aren't telling these stories in a way to capture imagination. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, give the people a chance to, to, you know, um, enjoy the event and get educated with it. And, you know, Americans, we don't have a great attention span because, you know, all, a lot of our sports are high scoring sports and, you know, the Europeans love soccer and not that we dislike soccer, but it takes time, you know, you watch it and maybe you get one score. And, um, one of the best things I saw in distance running was, um, the Prefontaine meet in Eugene was when um, uh, Moses Mozop, after uh, he ran 203 in Boston, uh, broke the, uh, I want to say 25K and 30K track record. They had. Uh, yeah, that was the, uh, d- the yeah, day before, right? Yeah, the night before. And people were loving it. And, you know, you could find a way to make this stuff interesting. And, but it's to me, I, you know, in this, I'm not, I'm a distance coach and I love the marathon and, and distance running. And, but you see a, um, just road racing is booming and, and, you know, with Kipchoge and Bekele and not that track's going to die, but it's, you know, it's kind of where everyone's going and the interest is, is going in, in my opinion. There to the roads. Yeah, sure. And that's certainly where the money is and the athletes will follow the money, but yes, Nevertheless, we shall see. One other quick note before we transition to our discussion with you. I saw also somebody who competed this weekend, Edward Cheserek, announced as he's been this man without a country, so to speak. He's trying to, to get in a to become a naturalized US citizen, but that process is taking time and so he's been in a little bit of no man's land. He has said now that he will try to compete for Kenya, which is his current nationality while he waits for the U.S. citizenship to come through because he doesn't want to miss out potentially on world indoors as well as the Olympics in Tokyo. King Chaz, one of the probably the greatest talents in the distance world at this moment, but a man without a country may end up on a team, may not, because there are politics associated with making the Kenyan team. What do you make of that whole situation? Yeah, so it's tough because I I went to Oregon. I'm a big chess fan, and um, I always considered him American because he competed here. And um, uh, I think he fit, I think he went to high school in New Jersey at a private school, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, so I always considered him a uh, American to some extent. You know, he's been here, is raised here, and everything. But uh, yeah, I don't that whole process. I don't know, and you know, uh. I don't know how it works and uh, I'm sure it's very, very difficult and uh, I'd like to see him run for us, but um, obviously uh, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get to see him run somewhere yes. because as you yes. said, he is a, yeah, it's very he difficult. is a transcendent <clears throat> talent and it's too bad that we're not really getting to see him in all the ways we should because of this big question mark. 
But he said, and even in interviews this weekend, he cut all of them short. He doesn't really want to talk about it. He has said in the past that he wants to be an American citizen and wants to compete that way. But at this point, has to make a choice. And if that's right now his only choice to compete at the highest level is to compete for Kenya. So we will see how that plays out. But it'll be a good thing to me if he's on a line, a start line, whether or not yes, he's... For any country, in, yeah. In, yeah, whether or not he's in a Kenyan vest or a U.S. vest. So with that, let's turn from current events, talk about you a little bit, Brad. I don't know that everybody knows your history, and so I would like to get more of it. So... Yeah, so um, start start from the beginning. The very beginning. Because it's you a have long, a fascinating story. It's a long beginning. Yes. Yeah. So I started running at age nine um, in New Jersey, and I signed up for a run for fun program. And my first coach ever was Mark Wetmore, so who's now the CU coach and um, University. Of you think he's scary yeah. now? You should have seen how he was <laughs> for a ten year old. How scary he was. Um, but he was my coach in New Jersey, and uh, we had a run for fun program in the nearby town, and. I started running and um, uh, we had a, a group of uh, kids uh, mostly around my age that were training and training pretty serious. And so it really got me into it. And we had adults, you know, it's just a club team called Mind Mountain Road Department. And um, uh, from there, I started, you know, New Jersey. I was New Jersey state champion. But by the, by the time I even entered high school, I had been, had been running marathons. I ran 250 in Gettysburg when I think I was in sixth, sixth grade, seventh grade, something. You like said that. 12 years old. Yeah, you and ran so your first marathon. Yeah, we were running marathons sometimes in training and to raise money, and so um, <laughs> we would do mind 20, blowing to yeah, me. We would do 20 miles every single week. So really, mm-hmm. as a and for we, the most part, for you know, unless it was during the season, a few weeks we would run 20 every Sunday in the summer. So. That is crazy to me. How did so? How did you? Well, let me back up. So why did you join the Run for Fun program? So I was in a running a little bit. I like to run. I was a soccer player. And uh, there, you know, I lived in very rural New Jersey. If You know, uh, it's Tewksbury, New Jersey. It's a really, really small town. And so there's not tons of, it's pretty rural. And so there, it was one of the towns that actually had a, a running program. And so I lived about 25 minutes away. And so signed up because I uh, just got motivated to run. I and ran during soccer practice, I think, and I finished second or something to <laughs> the older kids. I don't know why. And it just so happened that Mark Wetmore, who has now become one of the greatest collegiate distance coaches of all time, just so happens he was leading this group. Yes. What else was he doing at that time? Was he just new in his coaching career? or So he was, I think he was doing a few things. So yeah, he, had, uh, he was importing shoes for Lydiard. Um, I think he was selling EBs, if you remember those shoes at the time. No. So EBs were like these handcrafted leathery shoes that, uh, were comfortable, but probably weren't really good for your feet. (laughs) Um, but they made spikes and they had racing flats and, um, they were like Lidyard's company. And so he was, I think he was importing, working for a gentleman named, a friend of ours named Larry Sullivan, who was importing EBs and he was working for Lydiard in some capacity here, like writing his training programs. And, uh, he brought Lydiard here, uh, from, uh, New Zealand. And, um, so, uh, I think, uh, and he was teaching, he's an English teacher in Mount Olive, New Jersey. Okay. So, so how do you go from joining that program to running marathons? Cause that's a fairly big ramp, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I was very crazy, highly <laughs> motivated. And so, and, you know, I think Mark is an amazing coach. I'm not sure he's the best 
coach for uh, young adults um, <laughs> because, you know, he's intense. And I think um, uh, he was like, sure, run a marathon. That'll be good for you. <laughs> like He wasn't holding you back. Yes, yes, yes. He was not. But uh, I'm sure he tried. But <laughs> Were you the youngest in this group? Uh, one of the youngest, yeah. But there, I mean, there's uh, a lot of athletes. They won a numerous state championships. It was kind of a very small New Jersey school. Um, and they won the all group, which is kind of like the Hoosiers thing, you know, like a small school winning the all groups. Um, okay. So, in um, New Jersey. Yeah. And that first marathon, what do you remember from it? Uh, I remember more about the, um, geography. I, I was going up big round top or little round top where the Gettysburg battle, uh, where the most important moments of the, you know, where the South tried to invade the North and okay. got stopped. And so, um, I think Pickett's charge was on Little Round Top or Big Round Top. And so I just remember some of the historical stuff, but just uh, I enjoyed it. And um, uh, I was always a big fan of the sport um, as a kid on to now. Do you do you remember what you were feeling? Does you remember being hard? Easy? I mean, I, I don't think I don't think anyone really loves the last. <laughs> but I mean, like, I think I enjoyed the challenge of it, but um, I don't think um, I thought it was child abuse you know what right, I mean? right so you run a 250 what'd you say i ran 250 flat i think 250 flat as yeah. a 12 year old but very hard course obviously <laughs> how does it progress from there because you you then went on to run more marathons yeah so even by the i ran at university of oregon if you don't know under bill dellinger and even before i ran um at oregon i ran 217 marathon between uh I took a year off between high school and college and ran two seventeen at Chicago. Um the year Steve Jones I think broke the world record. Um that would have mm -hmm. been eighty five, I think. Um wow. so I was, you know, motivated to run long distances and I I mean I ran forty eight fifty five for ten miles in high school and some pretty good road times and you know. So I was already training very hard up to yeah. hundred and forty miles a week. Hundred and forty miles a week as yeah. a high schooler. Yeah, up to. Yeah, up not to. every week, but yeah. That's crazy. And then you go to Oregon, work under the great Bill Dellinger. Yes. Who had worked with Prefontaine. Yeah, coach uh coach Pre, coach Alberto, coach Rudy, coached uh, the McChesneys. Yeah. Um coach Don Clary, Ken Martin. He's a central figure in one of my favorite running books, which is Bowerman and the Men of Oregon. What'd you learn from Bill? Um Bill was very, very competitive, and um, but I think, um, yeah, I think he was a great coach, and um, I think uh, he was, you know, he was ahead of his time as far as specific training on a lot of things, uh, and he wasn't, he was willing to experiment on a little things, but in fairness, I think uh, he had had such talented guys like pre. Bill was kind of like a friend coach. Okay. Um, you know, he didn't always hold you back. He was, but he was really by your side, and you felt like. Uh, you know, he was one of you and, and you felt supported by him. But I think by the time, um, I was there, not that he was jaded, but I think that, uh, you know, when you coached pre and you coached Alberto, um, you're coaching Brad Hudson, not exactly excited. <laughs> not that I wasn't, didn't have, you know, can run, but like, I think you, you had some of the, uh, most ferocious athletes that the sports scene and, and talented in Rudy Chapa. So, that's fascinating, but he wasn't the one. He was he wasn't Mark Wetmore. No, but Bill, um, you know Mark. Mark's great, but Mark's very extreme. 
um, as a coach. And uh, I think for for super competitive athletes, um, Bill was very, very good because he was kind of low-key about things. He didn't, you know, he, I don't know, he wasn't super extreme. Like, you know, Mark will get you fired up, but you want to run 40 miles or something. <laughs> so um, there's, you know, it's a balance of, of really, of uh, being positive and supportive and, um, you know, and not uh, getting you too motivated. How did you perform at Oregon? So it was okay. I was, you know, I wasn't amazing. I was spotty. And my, I think my best performance probably was I was ninth in the NCAA cross championships. My okay. senior year, we got second as a team. And, you know, um, Bill, yeah, we only met a couple of times a week, which I thought was really, really good. Um, because when you have motivated people, we kind of all recovered it. Everyone can do the same workout, but it's how you recover and what you can do in between the workouts that separates everyone. And some people would go on Frisbee runs and some people, me, were a little more motivated to run 10 miles fast or whatever the yeah. case. But, um, you know, I think um, there's a there's a balance between the two and I, I enjoy both, Yeah, I would say. You know what I mean? Probably good to have yeah. had both those experiences. Yeah. Were you still running marathons while in college or did you take um, a break? So I kind of took a break till uh, I got out, but we did have some people that ran marathons, <laughs> but we were all, we were a marathon group and by our junior, senior year, it was very marathon oriented training and Bill had let us have a little bit of say and some reins in, in what we were doing. And, um, you know, uh, but definitely learned a lot from Bill. I think, uh, he's an amazing person and, and, um, you know, he won a medal in the Olympics and, uh, he, he's had a, a very good life and, um, he was inspiring. You yeah. Know? So where'd you go from there? So from there, I started racing the marathon right away. I ran two thirteen right away after school at Cal International and finished second. Um, and, uh, I went to more of the roads, even, you know, I ran some track and stuff, but, uh, I did start racing the marathon. And... I assume that's really where you focused, right? I mean, that seemed to be your passion. Yeah, yeah. It's what I love, and I still like, love it in training and um, really enjoy the marathon. Partly why I'm here at Rogue is because it's uh, a marathon-oriented group of people. Yeah. And, you know, I I love training elites, and, and uh, you know, my goal was to always be a world-class coach. And But um, there's a whole other side that, that I can learn and, and get better at. What's your worst marathon experience? I had a as, lot of as an bad athlete. I had a lot of worse ones even than McKinley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh uh worst marathon experience. Um you know, probably racing the marathon in the heat. Any hot weather marathon I think okay. is I found extremely difficult. Um A Eugene's not super hot. Um but uh B uh you know, uh I feel like, you know, when it goes bad it goes really bad in the heat. I'm sure most people can yeah. tell you that. Yeah. Well, at that point, you're fighting physics and chemistry yes. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's hard. Yeah. Because, yeah, one thing you learn in chemistry is that when, when physical, when, when chemical reactions have heat involved, usually there's challenge. Yes. Yeah. So how do you go from there, competing at the marathon at the highest level, to coaching? So I always wanted to coach, and um, I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. I never finished my degree completely at Oregon. I finished a lot of it, like 80 or 90% of it. Um, so I wasn't going to just roll into a college coaching job. And um, I'm not sure I would be a great fit for a college coaching, you know, necessarily the right program. Because I, I do want more long, you know, I guess NAIA does the marathon, but um, how many really care 
yeah. you know, care that much. You like the 26.2. Yeah. Yeah. So I was working at a running store and, um, uh, the Boulder running company and I started advising athletes and, um, people were started at the time. There really wasn't any, uh, post-collegiate programs, um, out there. Um, so no one really had coaches after college. Either you went with your college coach who was more focused on the college team or you, um, you know, try to figure it out on your own to some extent. And so I was started advising Steve Slattery who won the USA's in the steeple. And then, um, the first athlete I really coached outright was Shane Culpepper who won the 5k at the trials and got a lot better. And then from there that went crazy. So yeah. I started coaching Ritzenheim. and, uh, the Gouchers had come to me before they went to the Oregon project. Um, and, uh, wanted me to coach him and there's just like it, it was the craziest thing that i went from just hmm. i was like lacing up the Adidas brahma trail shoe or the uh, just, nike just kentara shoe, and yeah. all of a sudden like people were knocking on my door yeah so it was it, it went quickly yeah and what who would you say are your influencers influences from in terms of your coaching philosophy obviously but beyond the obvious wetmore and dellinger so obviously Canova is a huge influence. Uh, Nick Badeau is a huge influence. Um, Terrence Mahone, um, mm. Salzar, uh, Schumacher um, are all big influences on my program. So let's take those a little bit in turn. Canova, yeah, obviously Italian guy who coaches Kenyan marathon distance runners <clears throat> for the most part. What do you what do you pick up from him? So the sport, the marathon has really changed. Uh, if you pay attention to the marathon, you know, I know a lot of our viewers out there think it's probably the shoes and it's probably drugs that why the marathon's changed, but it's changed in a lot of ways, the mentality. Um, people are a lot more fearless and also the training, the training, the long runs have gotten a lot more specific. People aren't afraid to, to do things that have really, you know, the one event in the sport that has changed dramatically is the marathon because the training's the training's changed. And uh to me, Canova's really, you know, my interactions with him and and um seeing the training of what a lot of the top athletes are doing kind of opened my eyes to 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 what what these people are capable of. And even the Americans in my near the end of my era when I was um starting to get out of the sport, you know, the Canucci was doing you know, 20 mile runs fast. So the fast long run has evolved and it doesn't mean that it has to be all completely really fast, but that's really what changed the marathon. And also the lack, what, what I talked about track a little earlier, the lack of, um, um, opportunity, um, for these athletes, what they're going to train all year and, and hope they get in the Oslo 5k if there is one, which right. I guess now I don't know what there is exactly. Right. So they're going to train all year, beg their agent to get them in, beg their agent to get them over from I-10. And maybe they get in and maybe, you know, I saw something, I, I forget where it was, some athlete, uh, they showed the two extremes and they showed uh, a Kenyan athlete that went to Oslo and ran 12.58 and made $1,500 hmm. um, with expenses and everything. And then they showed the same athlete went to the Healthy Kidney 10K in New York, the New York Roadrunners Club and made $43,000 or something. Wow. So it's, right. you know, it's a no-brainer. You can change your life in one race, yep. um, you know, more power to them. But the Kenyans and Ethiopians have changed the sport. And 
but I'm a big fan. I've always been a big fan of the Japanese marathoners. I'm a big fan of Kenya and Ethiopian and, and the U.S. people. We, you know, we're, we haven't hit the marathon yet, but definitely Chicago this year was like a little bit of the water coming through the bridge. You know, we had a bunch of guys break 211 and some guy from my high school in North Hunter, New Jersey ran 211. This yep. runs for the Atlanta track club. And so, well, I, yeah. You know, and certainly on the women's side, we've been making waves for a while. Yeah. Our U S women are doing amazing and, and world women too. Yep. Yeah. So that's one big thing is the more specific long run work. I remember I was interviewing, Frank Shorter, one of the greatest U.S. marathoners ever, yeah, has a I, gold medal. I see him almost every day. I used to see him Munich. every day in Boulder. I was interviewing him for our Clean Sport podcast with Kara, and he was talking about how, you know, all they did 20 miles every week, but it was for the most part just always easy, and they worked hard on the, the, the track and on the shorter stuff, but primarily the long runs. When they went and went long, it was mostly an easy effort. Correct. You add a little bit of stim- different stimulus there for somebody like Frank and maybe that changes what he can do if you were able to transport him into uh, to the modern era. For sure, he yeah. obviously did amazing yeah. things then. Yeah. So that's one element, kind of from your influences. What's another? On the marathon, you mean? Yeah, on the marathon, just in terms of training philosophy that you may have picked up from one of those influencers you mentioned. Um, I think the professionalism. You know, you view the sport. So when I was running, um. It there like not that running was a hobby. It was still a professional level sport, but it was just kind of turning into you know a few people made some money. It's turning into a sport where people made money, and I think now that running is you know the marathon, the the professionalism side, you know, from the other sports even trickled over. So it's like you know, training's not two hours, and uh, yeah, you got a lot of free time. It's, you know, living the life eight to 10 hours a day. And I don't mean that's how much you train, but part of it's recovery, part of it's sleeping, part of it's, you know, taking care of yourself. And so I think the sport has really evolved. And, you know, some of the old timers don't like it. Uh, talking to them, they, you know, it was, it was a little more of a, a, a friendly sport. And now people fly into races and, uh, you know, compete and sometimes leave right away. And it's a little more that way, but they're still friends and it's, you know, all, all things evolve, and I think the the sport has evolved uh, to a much more professional level than when I was competing. And um, the you know these kids, they're all training with coaches. They all have uh, the desire to be good. So, how do you take that concept for somebody who may not be a professional? <laughs> how do you? How do they do it? You know, that's somebody, gonna has, be, somebody that's who gonna, has a day job. Something that, you know, it's obviously gonna, something we're learning, but. You know, how can you be professional as a non-professional, I guess, is my question. What are the important elements there? So, number one, you know, so the last couple of years I've really concentrated on sports psych. And um, uh, it's, uh, you know, the biggest thing you can do to be a better uh, athlete in person probably in your life is to get more sleep. Um, That's where it starts, you know, the brain. Um, So if you can, the, the brain recirculates in the evening and, you know, if you can sleep a lot, um, you know, the studies that I've seen, uh, you know, you can get massage, you can eat right, you can do amazing training, but nothing will overcome you not getting great recovery. And so it's in the recovery, it's in the sleep, taking sleep seriously, um, as serious as anything in your life, um, I think is, is hugely important. I mean, for a lot of people, but you know, there are some freaking natures that can get four hours of sleep and are pretty amazing, but 
it seems to be that um you know recovering better um the professionalism side of that side yeah sleep's important it's hard for some of us as we don't have enough time for it but one thing i am learning as somebody who struggles with it myself at least getting the right quantity is that you get it if you get in whatever doses you can <laughs> and given your constraints that's helpful so one of the things i've been trying to do better in the last really 18 months is nap not a lot not every day but if i can get two or three naps in a week that are 30 so to good, 45 yeah. minutes in whatever windows they come then that has made a big difference for me and uh were you the one well, we, was i having this conversation with you about ronaldo the soccer player who sleeps no, but uh, I saw some something big, crazy like five six, ninety minute naps yeah, or something. Or six day. one hour naps. Yeah. Like, how does he get that in? Uh, I don't believe yeah. any of. I don't believe yeah. any of. But that, I heard by that he has always been that way. It's just some extent. Like he's he is a, lot a of professional. People, yeah, yeah. Even when he came over when he's sixteen, seventeen, they said you know a lot of people were party. Like he was always wanting to be the best. No, he is, and and I'm I'm a soccer fan. I grew up playing soccer. Howard, um, Tim Howard the American goalkeeper. He played on the same team with Ronaldo in the Premier League. It was before he was at Everton. I think he was at Man U. And I'm probably getting that wrong, but he was on the same team with Ronaldo. And he said that's the thing he learned from Ronaldo is just that professionalism of just doing everything the right way all the time versus he would talk about how for him it would be like uh, the right way during the season, you know, but not 12 months a year, seven days a week. And so, so he, yeah, he kind of confirmed that point about Ronaldo that all the little things matter. Also happened to think that Ronaldo may not be doing everything the right way. And that's how you get a chiseled body at his age, but that's a topic for a different day. So, okay. So we've got a few influences. I want to run through some questions kind of training topics that I'd like to get your perspective on. One thing is that you're a high mileage coach. Definitely believe in high mileage. And that obviously started for you at a young age. So you've seen it play out. What, and, and in my last episode, I, I talked about eight common training mistakes. One of those being not running enough. What is it about high mileage that makes you fast? So I think, I think for the, for athletes, it's, it's a lot of things. I think in the, you, you know, it, it improves your running economy. The more you run to, you know, till you get run so much that it starts to go the other way, but, um, improves your running economy, uh, makes you much, much stronger, makes you absorb the training that you do better. So it means if two people, one person does 40 miles a week and the other person does 80 and you'd both do the same workout, at the same pace, the person that uh, is running more volume. If the talents are the same, is going to be a lot better. He's going to absorb that better. It's the, it's going to mix with the aerobic system a lot better and, and make the athlete much better. So I think there's a lot of factors that make you a lot stronger. It improves your running economy. Um, I think it improves your injury prevention if you're consistent and, and don't do crazy things. Um, so, so how do you run more and not get hurt? So in my opinion, I think there's a couple of things you do. A, I think um, my number one rule, if you've read my book too, Run Faster, my number one rule is I think that most running injuries are overuse. And so overuse is repetitive stress in one area. And so my opinion is that you change things. 
So that means that you change the pace you run every day almost, okay? Some days need to be super, super easy. Some days can be a little bit quicker. Some days need to be hilly. Some days need to be um, flat. Definitely soft surfaces for a lot of your easy running um, will lessen the impact on you. Uh, to try to keep you healthy, but mixing the surfaces, mixing everything, mixing your, even the studies they've shown on people not getting hurt. Okay. And this is, was done on elite athletes, but it goes for the person at home is to change the people that didn't get injured, change the way they ran every single day. So meaning they didn't try to, but different balance, you know, different variables. Yes. Different variables. And so if I'm a huge believer in changing your shoes from, you know, whatever brand you use, minimalist to, you know, like a, a thick Hoka shoe, changing that for different, for recovery runs, for easy runs, grass runs. I think you change things up because if you can change things up, if there's that stimulus change, hopefully there'll be less uh, repetitive stress. And I think uh, people run too hard. You know, uh, you see this a lot in athletes uh, using a heart rate monitor. Um, not saying you have to do everything with a heart rate monitor, but, but really paying attention to what is optimal, what's efficient. Um, every, every run should have a purpose. And so when you go out to run, you should tell yourself, okay, this run is a really easy massage recovery run. This might be an uh, easy run after a workout. Just know what you're trying to do on every single run. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't have some freedom. And I think some days run moderate if you feel amazing, cause it's very, and, uh, try to check your ego at the door and, and, stick to what the purpose of the workout is. Some days it's to run hard. Some days it's to run easy. And, and really, um, if you pick and choose what you're uh, able to do, I think you'll be a much better athlete. So variety, variety in paces, surfaces, distances. It's one of the things I talked about on my last episode. One of the common training mistakes is not varying your paces from day to day. Yeah. A lot of people go out and run the same hard pace every Worst day. Worst thing you can do, I think. And then but, that hurts you. So you said variety. That's one thing. Yeah. What else? It's terms of staying healthy as you build So, miles. you know, doing things that are going to strengthen your whole uh, body, your chain. So, you know, definitely, um, first of all, stability work uh, to improve. So, uh, you know, any weaknesses, get your body checked for any weaknesses, PT work, uh, ancillary work. So mobility work, mm-hmm. um, things that, you know, obviously they're, they're finding that if your ankle's mobile and your hips mobile and your thoracic is mobile, um, you're going to have a le- much better chance of not being hurt. Um, so there's things to strengthen and there's things to make mobile. And so, um, first of all, if not getting hurt, sleep a ridiculous amount. That's the best thing you can do. That's the fountain of youth and the secret to not getting hurt. Um, obviously good nutrition, good hydration. Um, warming up properly. I think now I would do one of the things I would have to say is that in the day of like Strava and all these social media things that people are so concerned about the whole run, uh, how it looks, you know what I mean? Right. So the best thing you can do, in my opinion, is to really start your runs quite slowly. Um, warm up into them, even, you know, jog around before if you have to, to if you're afraid of putting it in your thing, like you want to be warmed up. The biggest mistake you know, anyone that can't run a uh, higher volume for the most part, yes, there's some biomechanical reasons. Yes, there's, you know, cadence things and all that. But a lot of it's they're just running too hard. If they would slow down on some of their runs and make some of their runs easier, they can run higher volume. So there's a, you know, a proper place to be. And I think um, it starts with sleep. Um, it starts with changing things up and changing your shoes and changing the surfaces. 
Um, I think it starts with um, good nutrition, obviously, um, making sure you're not glycogen depleted and um, all that stuff. So. Yep. Yeah, I was listening to Lauren Fleshman on the Rich Roll podcast, which was a good one, but she talked about one of the aha moments she had was when she started running with some Kenyans, Sally Kipiego, and others, and they would start their runs at 12-minute pace or something like that, whereas she was normally going out the door at 6.30s, and, and as a result, struggling with some stress fractures and things in college that suddenly went away when she stopped being so crazy about how she was starting because they would start slow and then obviously progress to something much faster but but being okay with starting at 12 minute miles was was the thing i heard a crazy story like this relates to so i remember ritzenheim went to like nike team nationals or something when i was coaching him and i remember him telling me the story that like lauren was like running with him like in ritzenheim run hard on his long runs he's like what are you doing up here you shouldn't be doing yeah yeah so yes Go slow when you're supposed to go slow. Go fast when you're supposed to go fast. So let's talk about some specific marathon questions. I want to talk about the taper. Your your perspective on the taper. And this is one that I think is a little bit of an enigma. So really in the coaching world still, where people are still kind of figuring out what you need to do to get your body ready. I also think it's a very individual thing where some people need a little more taper or peaking period. Some people need a little bit less. What's your perspective on it? So I think it's so individual and I think you'll see athletes there's, you know, and even hearing stories from Canova, um, you know, talking about a lot of athletes, how they taper and all that stuff. So I use a gradual taper, three week taper. And I think that if you're doing it right, you athlete has to have some input. Um, race to race on how they're feeling, you know, one marathon cycle, it's really hard to get it exact because, but I do think there's some general rules and stuff, a gradual taper. And, um, you know, there's tons of athletes uh, and Japanese athletes that have won the Olympic marathon on no taper, um, tons of athletes that really didn't have great marathons till they didn't taper. But the system we use is probably a little more different. You know, definitely. I don't have a huge taper. Um, the last six days, it definitely tapers probably more than uh, but definitely training gets more specific even up till that two weeks, two and a half, three weeks out. And then it starts to wind down, but, um, definitely think a gradual taper. I definitely think, um, but it's honestly, the taper is a little voodoo. I think some of it has to do with your metabolism, how you feel. Um, and I think you can play around with that a little bit. You know, and there's stories of like, I think it was, uh, Johnny De Madonna never really was was having trouble racing the marathon. I think it's him, and um, they decided not like he would train amazing, and then they taper him down. And he was doing awful. He would blow up at thirty k or something, yeah. and so they decided we're gonna just train him. And they yeah. did zero. Tra- he did one hundred twenty the week of the race, and they started winning. Hmm. So he won New York. And, Interesting. Yeah. So gradual all the way down to zero so what does your template look like if you're going to say start three weeks out what is week one of that three-week taper so going so i mean so normally i would probably say four weeks probably leads a little better into a taper but i'll work back from the race yep so the race is on a sunday um you know the week of the race not very very little is done it's just some work at marathon pace on tuesday some 200s you know um i've had uh, some athletes like to do continuous. I like to break it up. Um, yep. probably I think apps, uh, on Tuesday they do a workout and maybe some pickups on Thursday or Friday and 
uh, race. So that's the week of the race. And normally seven, eight days out, I do anywhere, mostly around 14 to 16 miles for my, for top level athletes and 12 for non, um, seven days out. Um, and it's not a hard long, it's an easy long run. Um, and then some more threshold and pace work and fart, like sometimes on Friday. Um, and then working back the last specific workout, it'll be anywhere from 10 to 12 days before. And that's usually for a super advanced athlete up to 20 K 22 K, uh, for a non-advanced athlete, it might be 15 to 16 K. And usually it's variable pace. It might be, um, a specific intensive where K on K off type thing. And the totals, I don't know, up to 18 for an elite. Um, so, and then working back, uh, their last, um, interval workout I usually do in that three weeks out thing. So it's usually like three K, two K, you know, some kind of ladder of, of stuff. I do keep some aerobic power and some 10 K work in. Um, and, uh, their last super hard workout would be a 25K that I've done as close as 10 to 12 days. In Beijing, I think I did it with Ritz 10 days out. And so it's done at 98 to 102% of race pace. So um, with a warm-up and warm-down, they might title 21. So that's three weeks out, basically, yep. two and three quarters or whatever is how I do it. I usually use a 10-day cycle. So in an ideal world, things don't always fall on the weekend right. if I can do it. And what about weekly volume? So definitely I don't I use an exact percentage. Yep. Um, but for most the last seven days would probably be so not counting the marathon. So I won't count the marathon on the right. volume. So right. um I always use like seven, six, five, four, something like that the last four days. So their last uh six to seven days will be like sixty miles to fifty five miles, even for my very good athletes. Yeah. Um, then, uh, second week's probably, it depends on what they've done for their top level. But if, so if someone's running 120 miles a week, I can tell you exactly what their last, um, four weeks will be. Right. So their fourth week before is, will be one of their higher weeks. It might be like 125. Yeah. And then, uh, three weeks out, it's usually 110 to a hundred, uh, for most, yep. the 120 people. And then, uh, two weeks out will be 90 to 95. Uh, for some it'll be 85 and yep. then the last seven days. Yep. What I just spoke about. So I do believe in yep. the taper, but yep. I, I honestly don't think anyone could tell you an exact taper. <laughs> like yeah. what's, I think you have to yeah. play around a little it bit. It all varies. Yeah. For me, I mean, personally, I tend to find that a two week, at least from a volume standpoint, reducing two weeks out is where I start. But again, I'm not coming off of 120 miles a week either. Yes. So I think that probably has some impact. Let's talk about recovery from a marathon. How do you bounce back? What's your approach there? So I've done some videos on this. You know, definitely I don't, you know, I'll, I'll run you through the four weeks, but definitely after the marathon, I'll take you, you cross the finish line. The most important thing you can do is get fluid in you, get carbs in you, get some protein in you, get warm clothes on, um, get back to the hotel, take a warm shower. Um, you know, the things you do immediately, obviously, you know, the window for taking carbs in and protein, all that stuff, super important, but, um, it's very, very important, uh, that you get food in right away. Uh, warm down doesn't mean anything. Just get warm clothes on. Um, you just want to get food, get off your feet, get food in you, get a warm shower, eat a good meal, sleep. Once again, super important after the marathon, a lot of people want to go party and (laughs) that's okay, but you want to get sleep and you don't yep. want to drink tons right after the marathon. Yep. You don't want to binge drink if you can help it. Uh, um, <laughs> and a lot of people are like, Oh no. <laughs> right. Right. So, and then, so um, that's the first definitely, day. um, so 
I'm not huge on a huge, so, you know, it varies per person and how much, um, I think energy you put into something. So, um, uh, you know, for some of these people, they're going to want to take some time off, some decent time off, right. two weeks of no running or whatever. But I, for my elites, I definitely don't like a huge, um, time off. It doesn't mean they're going to train hard, but I like anywhere from five to seven days off zero. Um, yep. and they even some water running in there and some, um, mobility exercises. Cause I think, yep. um, it's just, you never, you know, part of why people get hurt is yeah, they're training too hard, but also they get hurt a lot of times when they're building up. And so never let you, you don't have to train hard for a month, but you can start running gently. Usually on Saturday after the marathon, I have my athletes start jogging, yep. you know, it's four miles or something. And so they, I don't have an exact percentage of what I do, but it did gradually build up to where they take uh, four weeks or we're up to some sort of decent mileage right. for them comparatively, but still not marathon. And, man- and managing yeah. intensity, I would assume. Yeah, yeah, yep. Easy, still all easy running. They start with some very light variations and light progressions before they go into harder training. But they definitely, you know, the earliest I would I ever give someone a hard workout after a marathon might be, you know, if they have to, like three and a half weeks. Yep. So, but ideally, you know, I don't use the mile uh, a day thing, but normally, you know, three and a half weeks, they can start to do some stuff and still not a long workout. Yep. I agree with all of that. What do you think about this seemingly new trend of racing marathons close together and coming back six weeks later and trying to run hard again? I mean, we've got Sarah Hall was trying to do it going from Berlin to New York. She ended up DNFing at New York. And then Des is going to be trying to do it, going from the trials to Boston. Although, part of me wonders how much that's uh, having giving herself optionality, depending on how things go at the trials, versus you know a plan to really go hard at both places. But what do you think about that? So I don't like it, just as a coach, and um, I'm not saying my athletes. I've had people do it. Patrick Rizzo did the Pan Ams and then ran two thirteen at the trials, ran well. It can be done. You can do it well. And so I would say this. It's very individual. There's a few freaks out there like the Japanese guy that I don't know what how many marathons he did. Yeah. Is he still running now, though? He is. He turned right. pro. He's still yeah. doing crazy things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he hasn't been so, at the top of a big yeah. marathon in a while, but he's out there yeah. doing it. So I'm not a big fan. I think you aim for performance and then you, you know, properly uh, prepare again for something. So I'm not big on that. But you know, sport is about motivation. And so if Sarah Hall is motivated to do that, more power to her. I think as coaches and, you know, we tend to put a lot of limitations on what, what's right and what's for, for, you know, I'm not saying you let an athlete do everything they want, but it's, it's so, you know, so much of, of people competing is what their motivation is of doing it. And so there are people that do it and there's some people that recover super well and, wish them well, but I, I'm, it's not a great long-term right. solution in my opinion. Right. But, uh, I tend to agree. Although I do wonder how much the vapor fly might be changing that dynamic because it is perhaps reducing recovery time. Yep. And that's why I'm a big fan of it. Um, I think that, so the other companies ha- are, have come out with, um, their own shoes. I think it would be a mistake to ban the shoe because I feel like the at my I always had my athletes wear them in the last year, and I feel like the recovery is much better. Okay, yeah, they feel better right away after the race, and so I think that anything that helps recovery is not a bad thing. <laughs> um, especially you know, Jared Ward just won the U.S. Uh, the 
Houston half uh, in the Saucony prototype. And right. I know Parker Stinson well, who I coached, he's a great guy and he loves, he, I don't think these people feel like they're at a dis- disadvantage now. Right. Now they can set some limits. Um, obviously, you know what they did, but you know what they're going to do with IWF or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that, but right. I do think this is a good direction. I think it's getting the average person to talk about shoes and the sport. It's also innovation is, you know, Ron Clark, wouldn't have been happy either when they uh he broke the world record in the 10k on a dirt track and all of a sudden everyone else gets to run on a rubber turf Sender. Um, so innovation happens um i don't think there's any going back um in my opinion and mm. graphite shoes the problem with this is if you ban the vaporfly then you got to test every shoe that every person's wearing because you don't know the absorbency or the efficiency of every shoe right so um, the plate is one thing, whether it works or not. I don't know. Reebok had a plate when I worked for them in 1990 and plates have been part of running shoes, but you know, the foam and the, uh, you know, I always knew this. Um, I, I've been a shoe geek. I worked in a running store since sixth grade. And so more what you get back, for, you know, whether lightness or, or softness, it's what you get back in the, in the EVA or what used to be EVA. Now they call it zoom air or whatever. Yeah. All these co- so maybe the plate helps definitely you come off better, but I think a lot of it is the resiliency of, of the foam. And, you know, I've seen the new balance one looks very, very good. So new balance has one. Asics has one that I've seen. It looks very good. Um, Saucony, Brooks. Saucony has one. That's very good. I know it's good because the Parker's like, I would have never broken the AR without this thing. This right. thing's amazing. Brooks has one that, de- that a lot of people don't know. Desi won Boston in, um, it was a prototype. Yep. Um, Hoka has one and they're coming out with even a better one, supposedly a really good one. So I feel like all the companies have, have joined in and um, I think you can set some limits, but in my opinion, um, I think it's a mistake. Unless yep. you're going to test, what are you going to start x-ray and shoes and test every single shoe? Well, I mean, to me, a couple of things. One, I would like to see at least enforcement of the rules. The right? stack height. Yeah, I mean... It, I mean, I don't even know that you have to necessarily change the rules or or create new rules, but just at least enforce rules if you're going to have rules. One of the rules now is that your shoe needs to be available to all, I think is the language they use. That's fair. And so that seems fair. Yeah. But how do you enforce that? Because right now it's not enforced. You do have people running in prototypes. And so if if you're going to have that rule, then you need a way to enforce that that shoe needs to be available to all. So, and, and to me, that maybe enough that may be enough just enforce the rule that's already in place i think i would tend tend to also like to see a stack height rule so you don't get something that's looks absolutely crazy like the alpha fly or there was also an adidas prototype on the start line at houston that looked more like a pair of platform shoes yeah they have them now than, so yeah than, adidas. than you know a running shoe and so for me if, if you had a stack height rule and you had a rule around prototypes that was actually enforced that may be enough for me to actually feel comfortable that the playing field would level. Otherwise it continues to be this arms race that, you know, and, and you never really know is somebody an advantage or not. We shall see, but it is a big topic obviously. And I think there was a, I saw a tweet today that there were, there's going to be an announcement from the IAAF this Friday about at least the, the current findings from their, their working committee on this topic and whether or not that means new rules or enforcing old rules or getting rid of all the rules. I don't know, but there's supposed to be an announcement coming this Friday. I do think you bring up a good point. I do think make it available to everybody. 
And so they have the choice. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously then, you know, people with sponsors have to make a hard call, but you know, if yeah. it's available to yes. all of them, that's different. Yes. Yep. Okay. We digress a little bit there. I know people don't love the shoe talk cause it's kind of gotten out of control, but we'll move on. Let's talk about me for a second, Brad. I don't think we've had this conversation All yet. Right, what's your goal? Short-term, As, mid-term, and long-term. So, so you're also now my coach. I am? Since you're, oh, taking, yeah, I've seen since you you're, since you're taking over <laughs> Team Rogue, you will be my coach once I actually am at a place of of being ready to train for that next thing. Right now, I'm training for the Austin Marathon. I've been doing this distance challenge, which is a series of five races leading up to the Austin Marathon in Austin. started with a 5K in September did a 10 mile in November, half marathon in December, another half in January, and then we have the full marathon in February. It hasn't gone exactly the way I wanted because I had a sciatic nerve issue that I have talked to you about, but I will get it done next month. And right now I'm leading the challenge. So I have the top time, the fastest time so far of everybody competing in this five series or five race series. So I've got to deliver on that but then beyond that i've been contemplating a a big next phase of work which is that and you know i think i told you i'm a 245 marathoner haven't run faster than that i've run 245 now let's see three times and or at least in that range three times i've always had the goal to break 240 in the marathon since i since I started marathoning in 2001. And initially it was an arbitrary goal. Then it became more palpable as I got closer. And my first marathon was like a 321 or something in Chicago in 2001. So I started there coming from a soccer background. Thought that I could go get 240 at some point, although it was arbitrary. And now I'm at 245 and kind of have been a little bit stuck there reaching what I call my genetic potential, potentially. I'm also getting older. I just turned 40 last summer. So, but I've been training more or less consistency for consistently for about 20 years. Started running specific stuff in 2000 and now it's 2020 and I've done marathons starting in 2001 all the way till now. I think I've done seven or 18 of them, about one a year since then. I've also mixed it up, done a bunch of 10Ks, done a bunch of halves. My fastest half marathon's a 115 and change, which I ran here in Austin, and I think that was 2016. Um, but my fastest 10K is kind of soft, 35, 15, I think, is my 10K PR. But want to break 240 for the marathon. That's the next goal to go after once I compete in Austin. My theory, though, is that I need to deconstruct my body a little bit and then reconstruct it back to something that can get to be that fast again. I feel like I have the aerobic foundation, but I'm missing some of the strength, some of the mobility, and maybe I've lost some of the speed that I have, uh, that I had, some of the raw speed I had, not only because I've gotten older, but because I've gotten further away from my soccer roots. And so I have this theory that I need to deconstruct and reconstruct. I've also never formally built weights into my training beyond doing it for injury recovery purposes. So the question is, if I'm going to build a plan to go break 240, what does that look like? My theory is that I need to deconstruct, meaning 
kind of start over, pull back on mileage, build strength first, then speed again, then come back to the marathon. And I need to get faster at the 5K, the 10K, the half before I come back and try to attack 240. So I'm thinking it's a two-year process to get to where I want to be after this race in February, but I would love your thoughts and also what you might want to know about me if if I'm thinking about right. that goal. First of all, are you sleeping? Am I sleeping? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't get enough sleep. That I can tell you. The quantity, sleep quantity is not there. I'm probably averaging, I would guess, six and a half hours of sleep a night throughout the week. And some nights it's less, sometimes some nights it's more. But I will say that I just took a sleep assessment that I would seen from on a Alex Hutchinson article that measured not just sleep quantity, but also other factors and sleep quality and things like that. And the sleep score that I got from that output was actually pretty good. Basically, my sleep quality is good. My sleep quantity is bad. So basically, the only thing I need to really work on is quantity. One or two more hours. Yeah. And That's I also have action. this new aura ring. I don't know if you've heard about this. I'm wearing that tracks sleep. It also tracks HRV and a bunch What's of different it things. It's called Aura, O-U-R-A. You wear it 24-7, but it, it particularly works at night. It's tracking your heart rate, your HRV. Your How heart, long have you been your, wearing it? Just a week and a half, two I weeks. I think it's great. Yeah, so I do like some of this stuff. But uh, it measure, it's measuring quantity quality a bunch of different things that right now are not that interesting but they will be over time because the little it, things it starts up. to learn yeah, it yeah. starts to learn yeah. yeah so sleep is bad okay so first of all you know see what your lifestyle is if you're sleeping you know a lot of people out there so most of people can't take naps during the day like kipchoge so most so you want to know what their lifestyle is like are they stressful are they able to uh you know can they train on uh, can I put them on a 10 day cycle where they can have a little more recovery between things? Yep. So I'd want to know what I'm working with as far as outside of the running. Yep. Okay. So your recovery and all that stuff. Then I'd want to know your PRs. I'd probably punch your PRs in, see where you're weak, see what yep. seems strong. It doesn't always tell you everything because sometimes you just haven't had the opportunity to yep. run a fast 10 K. Um, I'd want to see your training and see the races you've trained for, um, to see, you know, I'm big on, so I love marathon training and I've seen marathon training change people. Saw Dathan Ritzenheim become great on, on training his aerobic system. Yep. But that's not to say that you, I, I do believe if you train like a true marathoner, there's at times you have to go the opposite way to some extent. You have to go after the speed. You have to go after your muscles. You have to go after your nervous system in a different way. Yep. So if you train correctly for the marathon, that should almost be your first cycle. Um, because marathon in itself is the base. So I'm not, I, I, there's tons of coaches out there that base up for the marathon yep. and there's nothing wrong. I, you know, base for me would be the half marathon. It's not like we would go speed into the marathon, but, uh, the, you know, you, if you're training, uh, 120 miles a week and doing, uh, 30 K runs near race pace, there's a specificity of that that is pure base and pure aerobic. And so there's things that you can't do that you lack when you are, mar when you're marathon training, you know, speed, muscular s stuff. Cause you have to, you have to take the percentage of what's worth it. So I do think, you know, I would cycle your training more so that we got you where you could run a good 5k, uh, and then a good 10k and then a great half. And then we go into marathon training. 
And marathon training doesn't have to be super long. If you have a good half marathon threshold, it doesn't have to be super long. So yeah. it, and that's where it's going to vary per individual. So I'd want to see what you've trained for in the past. What, you know, obviously if you just take someone that's run marathons, giving them more quality work uh, without injuring them is going to help yeah. them with the same volume. So, you know, volume is huge. Uh, pace intensity are using heart rate. What's your everyday pace like? Um, easy. Yeah. I'm okay. good at that. <laughs> yeah. He did good easy long run the other day. Yeah. <laughs> We're all good at easy. Yeah. Some people would say maybe I go too easy. Yeah. But yeah, no, I definitely go easy on the easy days. Um, I do think, you know, we'd want to see your experience running, how many years you've been running. Obviously your soccer background, you're probably a very athletic. And when did you take up running? Oh, you told me this college. So, right? so yeah. College. So I played soccer five till 20 at 20. I stopped playing soccer and it's, I needed something else to do to, to stay fit and engage my competitive side. So a friend of mine was like, Hey, he had run cross country in high school. He'd kind of gotten into road racing in college wasn't running competitively in college otherwise, but was doing some road races and training. And he said, Hey, come run with me. So I did. And I, and I had a decent aerobic foundation from 15 years of playing soccer. And I, and I did okay. in my first 10 K, I think I ran 42 minutes at a 10 K in Houston when I was 20 years old. And that was my first exposure to real running training. And at the time I might've been running, you know, I'd probably run three or four miles at a time. No, no real long runs at the time because I didn't know what I was doing. But anyway, that's where I started. And but now I've been more or less consistently running for 20 years. The only year I didn't run consistently was when we had our first child and I couldn't quite figure out how to make all of that work. So I took about nine months of figuring it out. But beyond that, 20 years of aerobic development, you know, I've done, you know, I've done up to a hundred miles a week when I was That's a bachelor, awesome. yeah. when I was a bachelor and had nothing else to do for a summer between grad school and starting a real job. I ran hundred miles a week That's once awesome. I got some 90 mile weeks. <laughs> I had a really high volume summer that year. And, you know, but beyond that now, you know, kind of in the rhythm of my daily life, I can do 65 to 75 comfortably and feel good about it. Once I go over 75, I start to get... What are, in marathon training, shaky. is that the high? Yeah. Yeah. So 70, 75 would be mm -hmm. kind of where I peak out in marathon training now. And and that's comfortable. You know, like knocking out a 70-mile week is not a big deal for me. Going beyond 75, I start to risk breaking myself just because I don't think I am getting the right recovery in order to allow sustainable mileage higher than that. But the aerobic foundation is there. My strength tends to be the long stuff. The longer the better. For the most part, my pure training cycles have been marathon focused. For the most part, you know, I've had some half marathon blocks, and certainly we've worked in speed cycles. But it's always been something where I've gone right back into the marathon after that. So that's a little more background. So for sure, um, like I just said, you know, I'd want to look at your probably average volume, what you're telling me a little bit over 20 years. And so you're going to, the science and, and the, uh, uh, methodology, what I've seen over the people of athletes over the years is that it's, you know, in order to get better, something has to change. Okay. Yeah. It can be a little, it could be more volume at race pace. It can be more intensity. It can be more, uh, uh, more volume. Yeah. Or longer duration on some, you know, what's your longest long run? So if you've only gone 20 and you go 22, you're going to get better. Yeah. 
but for the most part, if you've competed for 20 years, you really have, you know, and it sounds like you've run some good mileage and you're going to have to get some quality out of what you do and yeah. be more efficient. And so, um, as a general rule, get your long runs getting more specific. You're not going to get tons out of a slow long run, in my opinion. Mm. Um, at least at the very least, not saying they have to be super hard, but adding some stimulus near the end of the long run, it can be variations. It can be one minute on one minute off things that change your stride length and stride frequency because of your, as you get older, your nervous system, uh, has a lot more problems adapting to different speeds. And, and you see, as you get older, you do, when you're younger, you can jump out of bed and run race pace. All right. As you get older, it takes you 30 minutes. You got to stretch, you got to have coffee, you got to go to the bathroom, you got to be psyched up. You got to think about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, in older athletes, uh, touching on race pace more, touching on things that stimulate you more, not long breaks either. The biggest mistake I think an older athlete can make is a huge break. Now, occasionally you're burned out, you need a big break, but I think I don't take breaks really. I mean, you know, my philosophy is similar to yours in that it's like you get Keep right moving. Back, you get right yeah. back into it. You know, for me, after a marathon, go out the next Wednesday. And yeah, I'll take a the break like you're talking about where you do four weeks without being too crazy, but I'm running, I'm back into it. Partly that's because I want to. Yeah, you love to run. Partly that's because I know that it's good for me. And when I have I used to do it when I was younger, I would I would make that mistake and I would go from you know, running a big race and then not run for three months because I didn't have another big race on the calendar. And then I would jump back into it and it would, you know, be kind of a disaster or I wouldn't get the most out of my ultimate goal because, you know, I had that inconsistency in between, but I learned early on that that was a problem and that, you know, more or less I need to keep it going. And for me now the routine is, is sanity. So it's, you know, like it's a year round pursuit for sure. So, but I do think that my, you know, when I, I used to play club volleyball in, in, in college and I was a soccer player and I lifted because of soccer. And You're a good athlete. You're I was a good athlete. athlete. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, and I didn't, I didn't have the competitive. So, you know, in college one year I played every single intramural sport available because that was a thing that I wanted to do. So tennis, golf. It's great. Yeah. You know, and I played junior you golf. You move well. So yeah, you move I've well. done everything. Yeah. I'm not great at everything, but I you know, I have a little bit of athleticism that allows me to be decent at a lot of things. And so I kind of there were times in my life where I was taking advantage of that. But in the last 20 years, for the most part, I run and that's all I do. So I do wonder if I've gotten away from some of that athleticism and, you know, if it's costing me now in the marathon. Probably for sure. For sure. I'd say you were a good athlete. And, you know, what separates the good athletes uh, from mediocre athletes? And, yeah, their aerobic system, their insides, there's definitely a difference. But how they move, if, uh, you know, it's not most of the best athletes that come out of other sports where they moved well or gymnastics, soccer, whatever it is. Um, so you have to get back to moving well in order to race the marathon. Well, you have to move well. And so I'm not saying you neglect your aerobic system, but if you can't move well, who cares what your aerobic system is? Because yeah. you'll net your nervous system and your body will never get there. So you have to move well first and foremost. And so drills think doing some things like damn path, sprint drills, things that help you move better. 
um uh you know every hill work if you've never done a, a block of hills doing uh anaerobic hills doing longer hills things that are things you've never done that might be a little different now at the same time you know your threshold we never want to let your threshold leave or yeah. your aerobic system leave so when i say a speed phase i don't mean that every three days is um 1500 5k work and right. we're on the track and i mean that the emphasis ha you know everything you do should should be gradual so the emphasis is a little lower we still want our aerobic system pushed we still want our um uh threshold high but the emphasis might be a little more on just moving well or things we neglected over the 20 years yeah so um that's usually how i start just what people have done and then i i like to see their motivation so their short-term mid-term and long-term goals i think it tells you a lot about someone what they ultimately want to accomplish because your short-term uh uh you know decisions are going to get you to where you want to be long long term and so um what is the ultimate goal and uh what is your motivation um and um also uh maybe get you tested maybe get you tested in a lab to see exactly uh what your optimal heart rate is, um, yeah. what you should be running your easy runs at. You know, you can use a V dot and stuff, but it might be good for you to, if you've never used a heart rate monitor, to pay a little more attention to it. Well, I have it on my watch now, okay. so I can certainly do more of that. And I've had VO2 max testing before. It only told me one thing, which is that I'm not an elite. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> it confirmed, very few it are. confirmed that. Yeah. But if I but if I think about it, I, I plugged in my or a time. I, I plugged in 35 minute 10k into McMillan's calculator just to see what that would tell me. And I've run 35, 15, so close to that. You know, the equivalent marathon for that is a 244, according to his calculator. And what's your PR, you said? And my PR is 35, 15. So my PR is slower than that, which probably actually equates to about, you know, what I have run for the marathon. And so those are similar, but it tells me, to me, it tells me that I need to be faster in the 10K in order to ultimately be faster in the marathon. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. So I would say, um, you know, the beginner, so I'm in no way have coached tons of beginners. And so I would say some general rules for the beginners is that, um, they overstride. Okay. Especially people that have run early, not you, you're not a beginner, yeah. but I'm saying yeah, yeah. for the, if you, if I'm talking to beginners out there for a general rule, check your cadence. You know, the, yep. the science says efficiency cadence is 180 and up and 190. So yep. that's something to check on. But yeah, my um, cadence is good. I know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was, what were you saying? Sorry. Well, I was just saying, so, so I guess I have two theories in this pursuit to get to 240 is that I need one to get faster on the short end of the range. My 5k PR is 1720. I haven't raced a lot of 5ks, but that isn't very good. Uh, you know, if you plug in the 35 minute 10 K McMillan says you should be able to run 1650 for the 5 K. I can't do that. Yeah. Improve in your shorter distances for sure. Improve in, uh, in, um, uh, racing intensity. So, you know, half marathon on down 15 K 10 K that type of stuff, stuff like that, that will still improve your aerobic system, but also improving your nervous system and things you haven't touched on. If you've only trained for the marathon, um, that's I not saying it would be easy because the main thing is to be keeping you healthy after 20 years of running. But yep. I think it's easy to see like maybe a direction to go yep. um, higher, more threshold, more efficiency. And, and, you know, for someone that a lot of people go Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, maybe spreading it out to, uh, you know, 
Tuesday, Friday, Monday, a 10 day cycle or something. Uh, Adding a little more recovery for an older athlete, I think is more important, but I think um, less periodization with an older athlete too. Hmm. And as you mentioned, more mobility, we got to stimulate the athletic part of my body a little bit differently, which I agree with. I won't, marry you to any specific path for that going forward but at least now we've teed up the conversation i got my work cut out and it's interesting you do because i i i there was a time when i didn't believe that i could run 240 Mm -hmm. now i believe it but i also know that i have to change some things to get there and i'm and i i'm willing to do that and i'm definitely motivated and you know, I'm, I'm the type of person where if you tell me the path, I'll follow it. And That's great. I will give you, I will do my I best. Will give everything I have to the goal. That I is, got my work cut out. that is certainly something I commit to. All right. We've been on for almost 90 minutes. Let's wrap this up and we'll have to have you on again, Brad. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for joining me. It's also want to point out that if people want to work with you they can certainly here in austin training with team rogue you can go to roguerunning.com and check out our team rogue page to get more information about signing up there you can also sign up through our virtual platform and be trained by you and so that's something else if you go to our virtual coaching info if you're not in austin and want to be coached by brad 1v1 through that platform that's also an option and so and also come join the rogue running groups yeah come, come down here uh great great coaches all different levels all kinds of different coaches with different uh training and different uh mindset so please come down we have a lot of great people here yeah not just you also others that's a good point so we appreciate that good to have you on brad it's great to have you in austin with us we'll have to have you as i said again on another episode and so we'll wrap episode 167 here thanks as always for listening you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on instagram twitter or facebook at rogue running until next time we'll talk to you soon